1: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 207. Today's episode is all about how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and happiness.
0: A lot of the communication that we do with children and really with anyone is about trying to change them, change the outcome, change the problem that they have, which means that we're trying to exert control over them or over the situation. When people bring problems to us, we have a tendency to either try to jump in and solve the problem to make that distress go away or to say, so wait, it's not that." there's another way to look at this. It's not that big a deal. Three years from now, you won't care or it's not such a big deal. And we try to talk people out of hard feelings. And so either talking people out of hard feelings or trying to solve problems, it really it lowers the other person's sense of control it also kind of conveys the message that you're doing this in some way you're, you're looking at this wrong logic solutions those don't calm hard feelings
1: turn up your frequency with mind love bite-sized brain hacks for seekers dreamers and doers it's time to give your mind a little love with your host melissa Monti. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you love the show. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even better guests. Today, I want to share a review from Lala Kazoo, who says, I love how versatile this podcast is. I feel like I learn something new every time I listen. Melissa truly is a wonderful host. She's nuanced and non-judgmental. It's so refreshing to hear how she's able to share her opinions and still validates the opinions of her guests. This is such a rare and needed skill in these times. We need more people like Melissa. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that review. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to help support the show. As a reminder, November is Parents Month on Mind Love. If you don't have your own kids, but you do have kids in your life, this month will be helpful. If you have no kids, you may still wanna tune in for a few reasons. First, kids are part of this world, so understanding them is helpful in general. And second, I have been amazed at how learning how to best interact with my child has helped me nurture my own inner child, which has already led to a ton of healing. And one of those ways that I'm healing and transforming is my own communication. Communication can be difficult with children. When they're young, they might not comprehend enough language to even grasp what you mean. And when they do have the words, they might not be emotionally ready for the message. Children's brains work differently. And those brains aren't fully developed until they're in their 30s. So communicating with them means meeting them where they are. And if you don't understand where they are, that might be extra difficult. I'm reminded of traveling to Brazil with my husband. (laughs) Neither of us know Portuguese, and we ended up in a few situations where we just couldn't communicate with people. I, however, do have experience learning Spanish, although I am not even close to fluent, and dabbling in a few other languages. Well, when you learn a language, you start to understand how to communicate with limited language. You learn the most common words first, and then basic conjugation of verbs and all that. Well, my dear sweet husband doesn't have experience learning another language. And I found it hilarious because whenever we would be trying to communicate with people, he would add all of these unnecessary words. Example, ordering a sandwich. He would be like, Yeah, um, give me the works, and can you throw on an extra layer of that sauce, hold the tomatoes, and, um, yeah, that'd be good for now. (laughs) And I'm like, babe, you're doing too much. I'll handle this. I want all the vegetables, but no tomatoes. More sauce. Thank you. (laughs) Well, similarly, when it comes to children, we need to meet them where they are and communicate within their scope of understanding. And children are still developing their brain's logic centers. They are ruled by their emotional brains. What makes being a parent even more complicated is that it's really easy to become stressed out and go into our own fight-or-flight mode, which (laughs) removes our ability to think logically. Or we just have different expectations for how our children process things. So it creates a disconnect, which can cause all sorts of issues. Our kids might shut down or act out or think their feelings don't matter. And we should all know by now that often our issues as children carry right out into adulthood. So as parents, it's helpful to not only meet them where they are by validating those emotions but we can also help them to develop their more logical brain by helping them engage it. So that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Ned Johnson. Ned is the founder of Prep Matters and the co-author of The Self-Driven Child and a new book called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Three key things we will learn are why autonomy is critical for kids and how to help them develop it a four-step process for dealing with kids' emotions in a productive way, and how to help kids develop motivation beyond reward-based activities. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a short note of inspiration. I like to think of it like a love letter from your higher self. I get responses from people every single day saying that the morning mind love is exactly what they needed to hear. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Ned Johnson to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Melissa. I can't wait.
1: <laughs> so what inspired you to start researching really how to communicate with children and also how to build their motivation and and all of those really useful skills that they need.
0: My day job, and for the last 30 years has been this, is a test prep geek. So I help kids prepare for and battle the kind of the alphabet of standardized tests for SAT, ACT, GMAT, GRA, all that kind of stuff. And my co-author, again, William Stickstrud, is a clinical neuropsychologist. So he tends to work with kids where Eh, things are harder, learning's harder, attention's harder, behavioral issues, so on and so forth. And we were lecturing for a while about motivation to parents and school groups about how do kids become intrinsically motivated? We discovered we really liked how one another thought and decided maybe we should sort of write some of this stuff down. And that's kind of what led us to write our first book, The Self-Driven Child, and then which really has at its core the importance or the value, both from a motivation and a stress tolerance perspective, the importance of a sense of control. And so that book did really well. We spoke with a lot of folks, really enjoyed it. But we got a bunch of feedback in part from our agents saying some people, they love the book, they love the ideas behind this. But a lot of times people just want to know, yeah, but what do I say? In this situation, what do I say? In that situation, what do I say? Because sometimes people don't know what the right words are. They get a little stuck and things go sideways. So this is a whole book about how to make it easier in part because When we give our kids more control and more agency in in a healthy way, by definition, it means we have a little bit less, right? We don't have a seventh-month-old anymore. We're kind of in charge of everything. We have a 17-year-old where, goodness knows, we shouldn't be in charge of everything, and As parents, we want to share wisdom, we want to shape them, we want to be an influence, but we don't want to exert power over them. So communication is really at the core of that because few things are more stressful than trying to offer advice or share wisdom and have it kind of get thrown back in your face. You don't understand that. And ultimately we look at both the science and the practical applications of this. So much of effective communication is not just the what, but the how. And so that's kind of a book full of scripts, a book full of the brain science, a book full of, of stories from our lived experiences of just how to make it easier for parents to work with their kids, not on them as they make their way towards adulthood.
1: There have been so many times in my life where I assume that communication is going to be, it's going to come more naturally. And I know that especially in specific situations in my life, I can think of when I was a volunteer at the Suicide and Crisis Counseling Center. The things that were my Mm. default that I thought would be the right things to say turned out during the training that that was actually the opposite of what I should do. And I think the same thing happens with kids a lot too. We assume that when we're talking to our children, that communication is going to come naturally. But it does seem like a lot of the things that do come naturally to us might be the wrong way to effectively communicate with a child. Why do you think that is?
0: It's a great, great question. Part of it is because a lot of the communication that we do with children and really with anyone is about trying to change them, change the outcome, change the problem that they have, which means that we're trying to exert control over them or over the situation. And we oftentimes do it in ways that they're well-intentioned, but a little bit of cart before the horse in a really foundational way. When people bring problems to us, whether it's you got someone on the other end of the call who's contemplating an end there in their own life or a kid who just comes to you, who's fit to be tied about, didn't get invited to the soccer game, failed to test, didn't make the soccer game, rather didn't get invited to party, whatever. As parents, as loving caregivers, we have a tendency to either try to jump in and solve the problem to make that distress go away, or to say, sweaters, there's another way to look at this, it's not that big a deal, three years from now, you won't care, or it's not such a big deal. And we try to talk people out of hard feelings. And so either talking people out of hard feelings or trying to solve problems, it really lowers the other person's sense of control. It also kind of conveys the message that you're doing this in some way, you're, you're looking at this wrong. And so the first chapter in our book is about empathy, validation because logic solutions, those don't calm hard feelings. Feeling listened to, feeling understood, that's what calms hard emotions. And from a neurological perspective is what allows us to kind of put things into context to shift our thinking to be less stressed and have the prefrontal cortex run our brain rather than the amygdala run our brain. So it simply thinks when kids fit to be tied, say, wow, that sucks. I'd be upset about that too. It's not solving anybody's problem yet. But as parents, it's so hard to resist not having our first be, but what if you did this, maybe you should try that. And then, because then kids get upset with this because they don't feel like we're hearing them.
1: I need to say that in reading (laughs) both of your books, I just kept thinking about how this is also totally applicable to now, like now in my life, the amount of times that I've had to tell my husband, which now we have words for it because I understand that I sometimes just need him to meet me on my level. So I might be frustrated and I'm, explaining it and he's trying to fix it and i'm like no i just need you to tell me and acknowledge that it sucks i'm not looking for a fix i can figure that out on my own and so not only is that helpful for now but also i think as parents or as adults we think well okay i have all this wisdom in my life i've figured this out so i can help my child skip those steps and just explain that to them but at the same time (laughs) that prefrontal cortex It goes offline even in adults when we're emotional. And in children, it's not even developed yet. So we can explain all we want, but they may still never be able to make those connections. Am I right?
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and I hope you're training your husband well. Uh, so <laughs> to be more supportive since day
1: one. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: interesting. I, uh A lot of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus, kind of thinking. I have a friend who is a little more blunt with her husband, and she's simply she's trained him. To, Do you want my advice, or you trying to find a solution, or you just need to vent? Which is a little unnuanced, but for them it works great because you're right. And for most people, in most situations. They really just, even if they're trying to find a solution, same thing with a kid, even if they are trying to find a solution, it will go better if we first validate and let them express empathy and validation. And because if we go back to the brain, and I should frame this up for assuming most of your folks know this, but... The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain right in the front of our heads in which reside executive functions. And so the core executive functions that even exist for kids who are eight months old are working memory, which looks like object permanence for little kids. For adults, it's holding on to that list of things to do. Inhibition or self-control. And the third one is mental or emotional flexibility. We've all had the experience of being really upset and feeling stuck, or someone else, and the only tool they have isn't working, and they're just hitting things harder with that. And what we're trying to help ourselves, our spouses, but most importantly, our kids, is to help them find solutions. And this is different from giving them solutions, because it's the experience of having something kind of intense, a tolerable stress, not a traumatic one, a tolerable stress, and then being able to figure out Here's what I can do. Here's a solution to this that wires. This is what coping looks like at a neurological level. And it wires the brain to when something else that's a little new, stressful, it wires the brain to jump into coping mechanism to ask, what can I do here? Which dampens down the stress response. And so we want kids to, when they can, to find solutions by themselves with our help, but not our giving the solutions to them.
1: Yeah. And what I envision is we're actually helping a child's brain develop. And I think of it with my own habits where in a moment, it's really easy to choose the easy thing, the thing that I'm used to doing rather than building the new habit. But I Mm -hmm. know that if I choose the easy thing, I'm actually strengthening that neural connection instead of building the new one that I ultimately want to reinforce. And so we can do that same thing for our children by setting them up to reach their own conclusions and to start problem solving on their own. But I'm curious, so much of this comes down to, okay, so it's important for children to feel autonomy because their biggest frustration is that they really don't have any control over their lives. But what is the balance of autonomy and attachment? Do those play well together? Do we have to think of the balance or does that happen naturally?
0: Well, 60, probably 70 years now of research shows that the ideal... Parenting style is authoritative. And so it's not lazy fear, do whatever you want. And it's not authoritarian kind of because I said so, but it's high love and high discipline. So kids, if there's no structure, if there are no limits, that's really stressful, particularly little guys, because the world feels chaotic. But what we want to do is within whatever system, whatever rules we have, and ideally make those in advance and articulate those in advance, not make them up on the fly. But within that sphere, we give kids as much autonomy as possible. And certainly a point that we make in the second book, What Do You Say?, is that, to your point about attachment, a close connection between a child and a parent, a child and a caregiver, is about as close as you get to a silver bullet against the effects of stress and anxiety on developing brains. So I think it's an and, not an or. It's hard. It can be hard to give kids autonomy because we feel stressed and we're closing our eyes and crossing our fingers and hoping that nothing ever bad happens. But we're trying to be, how Jane Nelson talks about being kind and firm. And it's hard to do that. It's much easier to be authoritarian or all laissez-faire, living in that messy, messy middle where we both love kids and we let them make mistakes. It's not easy to do, but it's so profoundly important for kids to develop stress tolerance, for kids to develop motivation, for kids to develop courage, not fear about the world that they're entering.
1: So when we are approaching our children in a new way, where we're empathizing with them and validating their emotions, what is something that parents commonly do Wrong that might feel right in the moment, so we can know what to avoid when we're developing these new habits of communication. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline. Or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to The Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. wrong that might feel right in the moment so we can know what to avoid when we're developing these new habits of communication.
0: Probably the most likely thing is giving advice. So this is a silly example, but one we have in the book. My daughter, <laughs> during four my daughter's now a senior in high school. During COVID, online multiplayer video games were basically the only way she could really do anything with her friends. So I think she was playing Minecraft. And all I understand is that there are different levels and you can make all this stuff and acquire all these things. And then if you make mistakes, it all disappears. I'm lying. <laughs> And so ah, I wasted all that time. And so my daughter comes down and she is just steaming. I did all this stuff and I did this and somehow she fell into lava. I don't even know why there's lava in Minecraft, but what do I know? And she's just so upset and... Our son, who's the loveliest kid in the world and a couple years older, he starts saying, well, did you do this? Did you do that? And to her, it feels like he's just criticizing, criticizing. Like, if you should, basically, you should have done this, you dope. And I just looked at I and said, gosh, that sounds like that sucks. And she just looked at me. She said, it was so frustrated. I said, I get it. And literally, that was all it took for her to then basically start figuring out solutions for herself, so when our kid comes home, I failed that test and Mr. Johnson put stuff on the test that wasn't even supposed to be there and everyone says it was unfair, right? As parents, we can start thinking, there's no way that Mr. Johnson would put things on the test or it's, it's only one grade, come on, let it go, pal. Not, and we start into that. And what we really just say is something like, and of course, as a parent, you're sitting there thinking, dude, I watched you not study. <laughs> I know why you bombed that quiz test, whatever. And we can just simply say, Mm, it must be really frustrating to feel like you didn't do well on something when you wanted to do well. Because a lot of times people think that validation is approving of things that we shouldn't approve of. But if you note in that phrase, it must be really frustrating to feel like you didn't do well on something you wanted to do well. That's a true statement. It's saying there's a valid reason for you to feel the way you feel. The reasons why you got into that situation, we probably don't agree on. <laughs> but when we do that, when we can find that common ground, it really calms things down. I tell you, I made a TikTok video the other day. I started on TikTok 10 days ago and I made a TikTok video that just blew up. It's north of a million views, which is kind of fun. And I know almost nothing about TikTok. And pretty quickly, someone who didn't agree with the way that I'd presented this, and some guy from Australia, and he just flamed me. There were like 11 things after the other. This guy doesn't effing know what he's talking about. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm reading this, and at first my blood is boiling it. But I'm sitting like, don't react, don't react, don't react. And I'm reading through them. And eventually, like the eighth thing that he sends, it's like, well, that's a good point. We can actually agree on that. And so I said, well, that's a really good point. Thanks for the feedback, da, da, da. And I had like three or four of these where I said, well, that's a good point, and whatever. And he responds when he gets back online, he responds, he said, I'm so sorry. I was just in a mood. Thanks for the comment, whatever. And then we went back and forth about an hour and we were pretty much ready to go out to have a cup of coffee or a beer, except that he's on the other side of the world. And one thing with parenting as well, it's a little bit the RBG line where she said, part of a happy marriage is being a little bit deaf. And I think that applies to us as parents, too. Not everything that our kids say do we have to respond to, or if we are going to respond, we don't have to respond to in the moment. Because When our kids are intense and they're stressed, we get stressed, and then we are also not thinking with our prefrontal cortex.
1: Right, and I kind of combine knowledge from a bunch of different books that I've been reading on parenting, but one of them is the idea that I read somewhere that when in a study, different groups of children were basically given a toy to play with. One group, a person showed them how to use it, the other one, they didn't. So in the group where they showed them how to use the toy, they figured it out faster. But... Mm they didn't end up being curious enough to explore any other features from it. Whereas in the first group, it took them a while to figure out how to use it, but then they were curious for longer and they ended up playing with it for longer. So when I think about that, I also think about in any situation where a child or a person needs to learn for themselves. My mom was always trying to <laughs> help me like learn lessons without actually having to go through it and I almost rebelled and like needed to learn things the hardest way possible (laughs) and so it it makes me think as as like a child though not only are they gonna make the mistake maybe go the wrong way down the rat maze but Mm -hmm. they'll find their way and maybe they'll explore some of the other things that come with a problem like that too instead of just relying on somebody else's firsthand knowledge it's just not the way most people learn the best
0: it's a beautiful point and really well said. In part because, and I haven't read that study, but I'd love to see it, one imagines that the kids have received the message that if you know how to do this aspect or this thing with a toy, you've mastered it, where there may be a million other things. As a teacher, you're going to sit there and show them every little facet of it. Who's going to pay attention to that? But when you explore that by yourself, Melissa, when I do, when your kids my kids, right? They don't know when they've mastered it. They don't know what knowing it is. They just know there's a lot going on here. Let me try to explore every aspect of this. There's also this real tendency that we have to think that we're protecting our kids by having them develop this mastery early. And you're gonna see this when when your son is two, three, four, five, this constant push to learn things faster, learn things faster, as opposed to really thoroughly exploring them. I, again, my work is all with high school kids and I'm stunned by the number of students who are doing like calculus as juniors which here in the states is is kind of a year earlier than most who really miss lack fundamental like algebra skills and it's been this push by them and their parents in the school, the hothouse, and go fast, go fast, go fast. And I would so much rather have people be, be deep in their exploration. And we can't get that by teaching kids. We can get that by doing everything we can to support their own curiosity. Because then to your point, they go down this rabbit hole, they go down that rabbit, and they explore all the contours of the things that they're looking at rather than just what we tell them is important.
1: It's funny because through reading these books, the amount of times that I thought, am I too old to send this to my parents? (laughs) Because I'm like, I can see why so many times in childhood, I felt frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I have an amazing mom and she did such a great job. And like I said, she tried to save me from the lessons sometimes. I also learned the hardest way possible. I put her through hell at different times. But even now, I have really big emotions (laughs) to the point that I've (laughs) wondered, I'm like, am I bipolar? I don't know. But I just feel a lot. I now relate to the idea of being highly sensitive or an empath. But my mom is a little bit more even keeled. And so even now I might be really upset about something. And she's like, just look at it this way. Why not do this? Or you don't need to get so upset. And I'm like... No, I just need you to meet me there. So now I know to go to somebody else Mm -hmm. first to release that. And I picture it when I have big emotions and they have nowhere to go. I feel them stay inside me and they will manifest through my moods, through my behaviors, even through how I treat myself. And so now I know when I'm feeling that I will go into my own room and just like scream or cry like a toddler for a few seconds. And it's like it's dissipated or like seeped out and I can come back to a more normal energy line. But when we are dealing with kids' emotions, it can be really difficult because it might seem illogical. It might seem bigger than what we're used to.
0: Of course, it's illogical because when you're upset, that's the amygdala, that's the threat detector going off, right? And it's not a it's not logical exactly. part of the brain. I mean, children do well when they can. And so when you're seeing a kid to have a toddler having a tantrum, they're not misbehaving. Those behaviors are their way of communicating. And they're basically just, I'm at my wit's end. And no one in the history of humankind has ever lectured or facted a tantruming toddler into better behavior. If, you're, if your son is super upset, you don't calm him by anything other than, there, there, there. Or when it's a three, oh, sweetheart, boy, you have a lot of big feelings right now. And that's how you start moving them in the direction of better behavior. Because again, self-control is an executive function that's completely goofed up when we're stressed.
1: So you actually teach a four-step process to dealing with kids' emotions. So after that first step of just staying mm-hmm. calm and mm-hmm. thinking of it as an opportunity to connect, what do we do after that?
0: Thanks for asking. I really like this formulation. I credit my Bill Strickshard as a clinical neuropsychologist. He knows a lot more about brains than the average, average bear. So it's sure... It's sure. S is to stay calm. U is to understand. We're toddler. well, he took my toy before jumping to anything. So you're really upset about, you ask questions, you solicit information to be sure that you understand where the kid is coming from. R is reflective listening. And this basically involves, we talk about wigging. We got this term from Iran again, and Wigging stands for what I got is. And again, this is a way to validate. You don't have to agree, but to repeat back. So what you're saying is you took Tommy's toy and then he took all of your toys and he threw them over the fence. And you, that's really upsetting because those are your favorite toys. Do I have that about right? No, that my kid <laughs> refers to Tommy's toy, but I'm just I'm just repeating the facts back because that experience of feeling understood calms hard emotions. And then the E is explore. So we stay calm. We seek to understand. We reflect back, and then we explore and say, "Well, huh? I wonder what we can do now." Or, "Hmm, it seems like Tommy was upset too. I wonder why that is." <laughs> of course, we know the answers because you took his toy first, right? But we're trying to gently take, particularly little kids, by the hand and walk them through their own thinking. But we cannot do that. We cannot give them reasons when their brain states are in a place that are by definition unreasonable
1: so we are basically asking them the right questions so that they come to their own conclusions which by the way is also what you do with somebody who's in crisis (laughs) so i learned as a suicide and crisis counselor because often when you share oh i did this or i went through something similar and this is how i got out of it a lot of times somebody in crisis their brain will just go to oh well we went through the same thing and I can't handle it. And that person can I'm weak and they get down on themselves even more. And so I almost remember being a child and feeling that same way. It's like, well, it feels like a bigger deal to me. I don't know why this isn't important to you, but it's important to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And so I know with a lot of parents though, they think, well, a child's brain isn't fully developed, so shouldn't we help them fill in the gaps?
0: And we can absolutely, but it's at step four, not, not step one, right? Gotcha, gotcha. You, know, you should be grateful. There are kids in Africa who have nothing. Helps no one ever, right? Because all that would do is make me feel like you don't understand how I feel about this. Yeah. And of course, we want to. We want to help our kids. Have the ability to see things with a different perspective, including ours. We want to make them be mindful of the things that they can be grateful and that other people have challenges too. But who is it? Is it Mel Brooks who said, Tragedy is my hangnail. Comedy is you falling into an open manhole and drowning. And it's just that a hierarchy of suffering does nothing. When I am upset, I'm upset. And yes, we want to teach our kids to think about people beyond themselves, but we simply don't do it, or at least we don't do it effectively when they're upset. We do it afterwards.
1: Well, a big part of kind of, I picture it as being like the pillow to absorb all of the big emotions. Yeah. (laughs) And so when I'm being that pillow for my child, a lot of what you talk about is reflective listening. So it's basically Mm -hmm. repeating back what they're Mm -hmm. saying. And so it sounds very simple, but I know in practice it can be really difficult. Why do you think it's so hard for parents to practice reflective listening? Or is there something? And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... risk free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash mindlove. Why do you think it's so hard for parents to practice reflective listening? Or is there something that they should think about avoiding or, or doing in the right way?
0: Well, I think it goes back to all the points you've made before, that when people bring a problem, we want to solve it. We're thinking, gosh, if Ned, if you could look at it this way, you wouldn't be so upset. And we just jump into all those kind of default reactions. It can also sometimes be hard to use reflective listening, simply because if someone I care about is upset— I get upset too. And I'm not thinking that rationally either. And sometimes people think that validation means I'm approving of this thing. And the thing that my kid or my spouse or coworker just told me about is so wildly inappropriate. I feel like I have to jump all over them about it. Two things we like about reflective listening. One is that it calms, Ron McGinn, this wigging that we talk about, what I got is, let me repeat that back. Did I hear that right? So what I understand is that kind of stuff. He talks about lowering the emotional charge. One for the person hearing it because they're getting the sense that you're listening to me. You understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, you're paying attention to me. But also for me as the giver of those words, because, it gives me something to do, it gives me something to say because your brain may be exploding with 15 different things you think you should say and how do I even go about this? And using the simple tool of just repeating back to people what they've said, buys me time, gives me something to do, it makes me feel like I have someone in control and lowers my stress to the my second thing or third thing that I say can be from a brain that's a little bit more settled.
1: So I imagine that this is easier when a child is upset but not at the same time misbehaving or maybe hitting their sister or throwing food. (laughs) And so how do we balance that empathy and validating their feelings with discipline? Or what is your view on that discipline aspect of it?
0: Well, it's interesting, there are a few things here. One thing we should start with the point that the etymological root of the word discipline means to teach not to punish, not to punish. And we have this tendency to want to punish kids for what they're doing wrong. But what we know from research is the kids who get the most punishment tend to learn the least. The other thing is that when we discipline, we don't want to do it with anger because one, we're probably not at our best. And two, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're upset, the kids will be as well because they respond to us. We respond to their energy and theirs to ours. And so whatever lesson we're trying to give, Their brains are impervious because they're on high alert, they're at high volume, and whatever brilliant wisdom we think we have to share, it's like their shields up and it's not going to go in. So I can imagine one kid hitting a little sister, and you grab his hand and say, sweetheart, I can see that you're really upset right now. But we can't hit our sister. But we'll figure something out here. But I can sure see that you're upset. Let's go talk about this a little bit. I have a few, I mean, everyone has parenting regrets. And one parenting regret I had was I had friends who had kids a few years ahead of me. And they used timeouts as much as most people use salt on French fries. It was just bonkers. And somehow I had the idea that this is a great parenting tool. And this was 20 years ago before I knew some of the things that I think I've learned now from research and great clinicians. And I can remember once, maybe twice, putting my son into a timeout, who's by and large the most easygoing kid in the world. So there really wasn't much behavior to correct. So he made that easy for me. But I can remember him sort of looking at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, how is this working? And I don't know. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, that he was going to get up from the chair in the corner and say, gosh, Dad, I've had time. Now that I've had time to reflect on this, I really can see the wisdom, the error of my ways and the wisdom <laughs> of your approach. Like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, right? Where Tina Payne Bryson, whose work I love, talks about just co-regulating. And so if a kid is really upset and you start yelling at their election in them, you're not co-regulating. They're co-regulating you. You're joining them. You're jumping into the deep in the pool and everyone's sloshing about. Where with our energy, and we talk about in both the books about the idea of moving in the direction of a non-anxious presence. So if you see your son hitting his little sister and say, you know, that's not okay. But also, he wouldn't be doing this if he was at his best. Hmm, he must not be at his best. And so you go in there and take a little sweetheart. Boy, I can see you're sure upset about this. I'd love to hear more about this. Let's go do this in the other room and leave your sister alone for just a minute. I'll come back to her later. Or when my kid was, I don't know, it was third, fourth, second grade. I don't even remember. He had a birthday party. And there were all these other little boys. And something had gone wrong. because all of a sudden they here this yelling and screaming and, and blah, blah, blah. And I go downstairs to where they were making cupcakes or whatever I was doing. And I can see everyone's like, (laughs) charged up like this. And I'm like, guys, I want to talk about this. And they're all looking at me like, why not? Like, here comes the parent. And I just said, look, nobody's in trouble. Nobody's in trouble, but I want to understand what's going on. And I must have said it like four times. Nobody's in trouble, right? One, because it's not my place to discipline other people's children. And two, I have no idea what's going on here. And I'm just trying to help calm them down. So again, if we want our wisdom and our lessons to land, we want to work first on calming down our kid and ourselves.
1: This is actually one of my favorite things about being a parent so far is the self-growth that goes with it. I remember when I was dealing with my baby being a newborn and he would just be crying sometimes. And I've been pretty lucky, actually. He's the type of baby Mm. where really if I meet his needs, he calms down. But there have been, of course, a few times during growth spurts, during developmental leaps, during teething, that he's inconsolable. And so I could feel myself being anxious. And then all of a sudden I'm like feeding him from my breast. And I'm like, am I giving him anxious milk? Is that even a thing? (laughs) And And so then I'm like, okay, well just use this as a time to meditate. Can I get my body to be regulated in the face of chaos? And so much of This entire podcast is about that. Like, how can I be okay regardless Mm. of what's going on? And so now I have this little being that's relying on me and he's watching me. And so not only does he feel my energy, does he drink from my body, (laughs) but he's also watching me and watching how I handle my stress. And those things are going to be his default because he's seeing what is regular, what is normal through his parents. And so it's even more motivation for me to be able to find my calm. And it ends up translating through other experience when I'm not even with my child.
0: It's such a terrific point. I love the way that you think about that. There's a story in The Self-Driven Child where I was on a plane flying from Chicago and we had a ground stop. It's one of those things where the pilot comes on and says, uh, update from the cockpit. We got uh, a little bit of a bad news. There's a (laughs) ground stop. We might be here for the next, I don't know, 75 hours. And you can hear everybody in the, right? And the stress just goes through the roof. And my daughter, who was one at the time, now she doesn't understand anything that's going on, but she can feel the temperature in that place just go up. And she just bursts into tears because she's as you mentioned earlier, you know, being sensitive. She's a kid who's just very sensitive to the world around her. And she just immediately bursts into tears. Now I am sitting there as the parent, one of the oldest trope in every parenting book is put on your own oxygen mask first. Well, I kind of lived this one. I did an epically bad job of calming my kid because I was so, or I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be stuck in this tube with 187 strangers with a crying kid for the next 70. And I was so stressed. I just like there, 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 trying, to. And I needed to find like someone's grandma who just didn't give a fig and knew a lot more than I and just had to and say, it's okay, sweetheart. It's fine. And if you need to cry, that's just part of being a little person. And so since that time, I took up, mm, probably about 11 years ago, the practice of transcendental meditation, which is not for everyone. Some people, it's not, they prefer mindfulness or other things, but for me, because I'm a little tightly wound, given my own background, we can talk about that if you want to, but I make it my job to be well-rested, to meditate twice a day, and to exercise, if not every day, pretty darn close to this, because when I'm in my right mind, I can handle almost anybody's difficulty, upset, stress, people telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. It's an interesting perspective. Let's explore that. But when I'm not those things, I'd be right there bursting into tears with your son or my daughter (laughs) and not helping them.
1: So how do we help kids find their own motivation? I grew up being a fairly motivated child on my own, and I'm not sure what led to that. So I've reflected on it a lot. I hated asking my parents for help with homework. I like to get things done as soon as possible, so I had ultimate free time. But I've thought about it. And I'm like, I have no idea what actually led to that behavior. What have you found in terms of actually helping children be motivated? And like your first book was titled "Self-Driven."
0: Well, it's a great point, and part of this is temperament, right? Actually, that TikTok that I they blew. Up, was talking about this that some people are naturally more motivated, some people less, some people stress more easily, some people less. A story in the in what do you say? Our second book, where Bill describes he has these two adorable granddaughters, and one of them is very driven, very focused, very hardworking, and the other one's very sort of head in the clouds. And their dad had said to them, well, "So girls, when I come home from work today, let's do something fun. But first, I need you to clean up the toys." And so it was an hour before their dad was coming home, and the older one said, "said Miriam, let's clean up." toys, so we can do something fun with dad. And the younger said, eh, let's just do something boring so we don't have to clean up. And they're (laughs) like four and six, and they're just, they're wired the way that they're wired. But in terms of motivation, There are two types of motivation. It's worth taking a moment to talk about them. There's the classic extrinsic motivation, external motivation, that's carrots and sticks, right? Of a promised reward or conditional parental love and approval or threat, you're gonna lose your cell phone or I'm gonna take away that approval of you. And it works really well, but it's really, really not good on developing brains. And especially if our goal is not to get our kids to be motivated, to get them to be intrinsically motivated, not to work hard, but to want to work hard. And so fortunately, there's a model for this. It's actually one of the most supportive models in all of psychology. It's called self-determination theory and the idea of intrinsic drive. I'm doing these things because I want to, because they matter to me, because, yeah, it feels good to do this and it holds that to feel intrinsically motivated we need to have met three foundational psychological needs one for a sense of competency right i need to feel good enough i can do this stuff two for a sense of relatedness or sense of connection and three for a sense of autonomy and so this is if you go back to your point or question earlier about attachment versus autonomy we really 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 need this to be an and not an or because sometimes when we as parents lean, lean, lean too much, our kind of tell our kids what they need to do, particularly past the age that, well, particularly when they get into school age, when we do that, our kids will have to decide to sacrifice their autonomy to maintain the relatedness with us Or sacrifice the relatedness with it, you know, lose parental approval in order to hold on to that autonomy that's so important. And it's a three-legged stool. We need all three of these. And so you can really just see where do kids need this? What do they need more of just based on how they respond? I mean, my daughter's first complete sentence that I can remember was, I do it. Okay, (laughs) you clearly need more autonomy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I've noticed even now, there's just... Everything that's coming to the surface for me is like, oh, I wonder if I'm this way because of my childhood (laughs) and not to place the blame, but to see how I can improve. Well,
0: all of us, right? I mean, they talk about epigenetics is a great, it's on experience on top of genetics. So clearly you were wired the way that you were wired. I was wired the way that I was wired. And then what happens through the rest of life, particularly early ages, will shape that and bend it ideally for better, sometimes not.
1: I grew up in the 90s for the most part. I was born in 85. And so video games were coming out at that time. There weren't a lot of studies on the effects of video games. There was just a lot of new technological advances that we weren't yet balancing out with, okay, well, what is the downside for this? And so I can see now, I went to a wedding last year and all the kids were huddled near the wall because that's where the plug was and they were playing on a device even though we were at a wedding with this beautiful beach view and i'm sitting there like why aren't these kids like playing outside i played outside so much as a child and so i can see that especially this generation and even my generation we're influenced by the more reward-based activities. And so one of the my biggest challenges that I've been working on since being aware of this is figuring out how to be more in flow state than these things that just give me this dopamine hit over and over again. How can right. I actually enjoy what I'm doing being immersed in my body, in my life? How do we support kids to get into that flow state versus that more reward-based activity?
0: That's a really fun question. I like that one a lot. The first first thing would be for children, children do not need digital anything. I mean, every time I see like a two or three or 4 year old in a stroller with an iPad, I want to lose my mind because the literature is so clear on it. Don't, 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 don't. If, if people don't yet know the work of Peter Gray, who's an expert on play, really, really worth reading his stuff. In addition to digital time, we'll come back to the post date in a moment, in addition to digital devices, play Play by definition is not structured. It's not adult structured and it's not adult directed. So we give kids the opportunity, the space, but we don't sit there and try to tell them, sweetheart, why don't you make this? Why don't you make that? Because it really messes with the flow state. In our first book, we talk about, in the chapter about motivation, we do talk about this flow state and the work of a guy named Reed Larson, who was exploring how do adolescents, how do children and adolescents, become intrinsically motivated. And he said, it's through the passionate pursuit of pastimes, whatever they wanna play with, whatever they wanna explore, whatever. And we don't weaponize and turn them, well, we've got to get you on a travel team, unless the kid wants to get on a travel team. I remember when my daughter was three, she was doing all the stuff with tape. And she kept like oodles and oodles of scotch tape and like tape was her medium. And it drove my wife nuts because that's, there's paper and there's all this other stuff you should be doing, making something with the tape. Well, she was making something with the tape, but tape alone. And I thought, why can't tape be her medium for now? We wanna have kids be able, whatever direction they wanna go in, as long as it's safe, we wanna let them, back to your curiosity and exploring the toy, we wanna have them do that as much as possible. When kids get into late childhood, tween age, we know that digital devices are gonna become part of it. But one of the things we wanna resist is having kids use it for extended periods of time. So before, I mean, if if you don't have a kid who yet has a phone, the first thing I would do is get them a phone that is very limited. That's not a smartphone. So they can text with their friends, then call mom in an emergency, but it doesn't have all these other things because Gene Twenge goes on and on about this. These things by design are so addictive. And young brains or particularly adolescent brains, are more vulnerable addiction to everything. So that's a thing. We talk about sleep and technology and what he's saying. And one of the researchers would like to ask, she's a clinician, a guy named Cliff Sussman, makes the point, I'll talk about addiction. The way addiction works is you do something, mad dopamine hit, right? And you're woo, and it's an excited chemical. And so your brain then has to down regulate the number of dopamine receptors because if it's too excited, you kind of do brain damage, which means that next time you need a longer bout of it. His point is simply this that we want to, for you, for me, and for our kids, oscillate, oscillate, go back and forth between a high dopamine activity. And a low dopamine activity so don't play video games for four hours straight play for an hour and then go walk the dog or play for half an hour and then do your homework for half an hour or whatever because when we're in that constant state constant constant state of high dopamine it's really not good to brains but for the flow state it's really trying to give kids opportunities with non-screen time activities and whatever it is One of the single best things for developing brains is to work harder and harder to get better and better at something that you already like to do.
1: Yeah, I am learning that so much about raising a child is really just following them and seeing what they're interested in and then providing a space that they can explore that. Even when we were talking about big emotions earlier, one of the things that I'm learning is, say, I have another child and one of them's hitting one of them, you can actually just say something like, I see you're in a hitting mood. Why don't you come over here to these pillows? That way you're not (gasps) always stopping their their activities. Yeah, and so you're just redirecting or it's like, oh, you're in a jumping mood or you're throwing things, let's go outside. And so instead of always saying no, 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 which I think a lot of parents get into that habit of, they're saying yes to the activity, but they're directing it in a way where they can create a safe space for them. And so much of this is about creating a safe space safe space for a child's development. It's about creating a safe space in your home and with your own energy.
0: We talk about this in the book that when you look at MRIs and look at brains, negative words are fantastically more powerful, not in happy ways, than positive words. So the word no, hearing the word no alone once will make this explosion in the stress parts of the brain obviously the things that kids ask about and we're not prepared to say yes to them but that redirect is just terrific where if your kid says can i have a candy bar you can say rather than say no say sweetheart, I'd love to say yes, but if I can't say yes, let's figure out a plan B so we can find you something that you like. And now it's a conversation about something sweet or something fun after dinner. Not, no, you can't have a candy bar now because of, no, you're not getting a candy bar now. Now, it doesn't mean that we never say no, but as much as possible, if we can be a little more flexible and redirect just the way that you've described, we're training our kids to be flexible
1: in their thinking as well. Oh yeah, that's such a good tip because I can feel how being a parent, you start developing your own neural connections of habits of interaction. And so if you get into the habit, like a lot of this seems like, oh, it might take a lot of work. There's so much talking. That's a review I read on a different book was, Yeah, this is all great, but there's just so much talking and sometimes I don't have time. But I found with anything, with interacting with my husband, with interacting with myself, the world, like it's a habit of interaction. So if you get into that habit of saying no, then that's going to be your default. But if you get into the habit of being that like pillow for their emotions or Mm -hmm. of redirecting it, then that's going to become your default and it won't take so much thought. Well, the last thing I want to ask is my biggest passion is really the pursuit of happiness and figuring out how our brains work and how to be in this world to where we're enjoying our time here. And so I want to make sure that I'm not... Overbearing when I'm teaching my children some of this stuff. I already have a whole Amazon wish list of mindfulness books for babies. <laughs> so how do you recommend <laughs> that we that we talk with kids about that pursuit of happiness in a way that they're going to understand what it means?
0: I love that question. Part of it is talking with them about what makes us happy. One of the last chapters in the book, I think it's chapter seven. Anyway, it starts with a story where Bill was in, talking to an independent school in Dallas, Texas. And it was a bunch of student government kids. And he asked them, maybe they were their 10th grade, something like that. He said, how many of you want to be happy as an adult? And they all kind of, she raised their hands like, duh. And so well, what do grownups tell you is necessary to be happy as an adult? And this kid raises his hand He says, well, they tell us if we get into a good enough college that everything else will just fall into place. And it couldn't be more wrong. I mean, (laughs) if getting to a good college was all it took, then students at Yale would be among the most happy people in the universe, as opposed to Laurie Santos having to design a class, the most oversubscribed thing in the college's 300-year history, about how to be happy. Because they had achievement nailed, but they didn't know really what it takes to have a happy life. And so we lean on the research of Martin Seligman, 40 years ago, started the field of positive psychology, of not just how do we reduce suffering, what do we know about people who are really thriving in life? And so his acronym is PERMA. So it's positive emotion. So some of this goes back to the temperament that you're born with. E is engagement. So whether that's Legos or lacrosse or learning a foreign language, tape, art, whatever, that deep flow experience of deep engagement doing things. R is relationships. And so this is with our kids we can talk about one of the things that makes me happiest in the world, sweetheart, is just talking to you and hearing what you have to say. Or. I can't wait to go out to coffee with my friend Sally on Sunday because I so like in talking with her. Or one of my favorite parts of the week is having date night with Daddy because we sure love you. But one of the things that's so important to us is having time one on one with each other because we love each other just the way. Then that's the reason that we had you. And then meaning, and this is everything from involvement in your church to the, all the philanthropic things that people do. We know that if you give people a hundred dollars and say, "Do you want to spend this on yourself or someone else? What you think about you're happier?" People always think they'll be happy happier spending on themselves. But when they come back a week later, people always, there's more happiness, particularly happiness that lasts for reflecting because when they give money to other people in part, because it gives them something to reflect on. And then the last thing, the A is achievement or accomplishment. And yeah, getting a great college makes you happy, getting an award, getting recognized, getting money. Absolutely. But it's one fifth of the equation. And the world, particularly America, has become so much more materialistic and you know so much more about status, so much more about wealth, so much more about likes on every social media platform. And that's fine. But if kids think that all happiness is through that path of accomplishment, oh, goodness, you can achieve everything. And end up being unhappy because you've swept aside these other things that are foundational to kids happiness. So to help our kids with that, I think the easiest thing, the most powerful parenting tool that any of us has is modeling it. And so doing things that bring us happiness and just sort of verbalizing to our kids, I just love it when I get a chance to and whatever that is.
1: I love that. Like I said, I'm already trying to create the habits of behavior that I want to model because I know it's not going to come overnight. And so I talk to my baby a lot. I don't know how much he can understand me, but it's just the two of us and I need to talk to someone. And before I was talking to myself. So so right now there have been moments though where already I'm practicing where I get frustrated and I don't act as my best self and I am just open about that. And I say it just out loud because one day he will be able to understand. And so it's like, oh, sorry. Like mommy didn't handle herself well there. Mommy was frustrated. She should have taken a deep breath before she responded to this, whatever. And so I am trying to also show or practice giving myself grace in a way that my child could understand so that he's going to be able to model that same behavior and the way he interacts with himself versus like I mean, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of moments where I snap at him because I'm frustrated. And instead of a lot of humans, they like to then justify their actions after the fact because they, of course, couldn't have done something illogical. There must have been a reason. And instead Mm -hmm. be like, oh, I was also in my emotional brain. I didn't handle this the best. I'm going to take deep breath, admitting my own faults at the same time so that he can see not only the right way to do things, but hey, if I slip up, here's a way to course correct as well.
0: It couldn't have been said better. That's so right, <laughs> from a, from a science perspective, from a psychology perspective, it's exactly right. Because first of all, there are no perfect parents. And, and kids don't need perfect parents. Thank God, the human race would be in trouble, right? But exactly what you described there, when you're not in your best, you can model, I wish I had, or if you're about to feel hot, I'll send my kid, I'm really feeling upset about this. I'm just gonna go for a walk and I'll be back in like five minutes. This is important, but I don't wanna blast you with, just because I'm feeling really, really intense about this. And we model for our kids. We're not always gonna be placid and calm and, and the sound of music <laughs> kind of with ourselves or with our children. And when we do make mistakes, we come back around and we apologize, in part because that gives our children a message of grace that they don't have to be perfect either. And it gives them tools for when they do make mistakes. Oh, gosh, here's what I can do. I can go apologize and that'll make things a little bit better, which is so much better than you go apologize to whoever learned from that. Having your parents apologize effectively to you, oof really powerful stuff.
1: Well, thank you so much for everything that you've brought, not just to this interview, but to my life because it's been really influential In already, I know he's only seven months old, but of course, I'm a little overprepared here. <laughs> and so I can already <laughs> feel the way that I'm speaking to this person who doesn't talk back to me changing and I can feel myself developing more mindful habits around these communication methods with my child. So thank you for that. And for listeners that are resonating with this episode... Where's the best place for them to connect with you online or to find your books?
0: So books are kind of everywhere. We always love independent local bookstores that so go there or that Bezos guy with the Amazon. You can find them find there too, I'm sure. Our website is selfdrivenchild.com and you can read about us there. And, and I'm on social media, Ned Johnson or on TikTok. The other Ned Johnson, that's a long story, but I'm kicking around. The, the real Ned Johnson is the founder of Fidelity, but everything after that is, is mostly me, so...
1: All the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 207. So your challenge for this week is to start to observe the way that you communicate with your children. And what I want you to practice is meeting them where they are with their emotions. First, reflecting and validating their emotions like we talked about. Step one in the four-step process. So as a reminder, that four-step process is number one, stay calm and think of your kids' strong emotions as a great opportunity to connect. Number two, understand and accept rather than judge. So be curious rather than accusatory. Number three, reflect and validate their feelings. And number four, explore and ask follow-up questions. So that step one is really pivotal. It's an entire mindset shift of, thinking of your children's emotions as an opportunity to connect the moment that you see that as an opportunity rather than what you're used to looking at the big emotions as which can be anything from resistance having feelings of resistance having feelings of irritation having feelings of control or trying to change it instead just accept that and think of it as an opportunity to connect Just by doing that, by thinking of that opportunity, your mind will think of new ways to connect with your child. You will open yourself up to a new way of being. You can follow the rest of the steps, which I encourage that you do, build your own neural connections in a new way of handling this. But I can almost guarantee that just by going with step one, you'll start to do the other steps almost automatically. And I'll also tell you that this works with adults too. Meet them with their emotions, validate their feelings. I don't know how many times I have had to tell my husband, I'm not looking for you to fix my problems. I just need to vent or (laughs) I'll even tell him at this point, okay. All I need from you is to listen or I need you to meet me on my level and vent a little with me. <laughs> and so this works with everyone. We all like to feel like our emotions are valid. And so this practice isn't going to just help you be a better parent. It's going to help you be a better friend, a better listener, just a better communicator in general. And let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at MindLoveMelissa. So. A few amazing ways to support the show. Number one, by sharing the show with somebody that this might be helpful towards. It could be a new mom, an experienced mom, somebody who's just having trouble connecting with their kids. Another way is to support one of my amazing sponsors. I love all my sponsors. I'm very picky about who I even allow to sponsor me because they have to be in alignment. So it's a really a win-win where you get something you love and you help encourage them to sponsor me for longer. And the last way is by joining MindLove Premium. You can do that right at mindlove.com slash premium or join right in the podcast app. You get all the backlogs of exclusive episodes plus meditations and some other amazing bonuses. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.